0: Welcome back to Hardly Working. If you can't tell, this is not your host, Brent Orrell. But wait, stay with us. My name is Jake.
1: I'm Jesse.
2: And I'm Hunter.
0: And we work as research assistants for Brent Orrell here at the American Enterprise Institute.
2: If you listen regularly, you've heard Brent interview guests about everything from the social safety net to neuroscience to Waffle House. Every guest interview at its core is also an exploration of vocation and the careers and pathways that it leads us toward. And today we get to turn the tables and hear Brent's own story.
1: You'll hear about his vocational journey, his vocation and policy philosophy, and even a few of his favorite books. We'll also provide a sneak peek at our spring podcast lineup. If you have more questions for Brent that we don't get to, feel free to reach out via Twitter at orlAEI or email us at AEI.org. We hope you enjoy the show.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Hardly Working. Uh, we have Brent Orell here with us today. Um, so thank you for joining us, Brent.
3: Yeah, I would just like to know who authorized this. <laughs>
0: I
1: think uh, authorized I, I, it. I,
3: I don't recall turning this the turning this over to you all, but I'm 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 kidding, of course. I'm excited to be with you guys, as I always am. Um, best team at AEI.
0: <laughs> well, you're too kind, Brent. And, you know, we, uh, we've we taken over the ship, but I think the, the purpose here is going to be uh, really enjoyable uh, just to get to know uh, your own vocational journey uh, as you have, uh, you know, meandered throughout uh, a multitude of jobs and uh, come to what I would consider maybe the best one ever uh, uh, working at AEI. So thank you for answering some questions that your team has uh, prepared for you. So we'll we'll go ahead and get started here. As anyone who listens to Hardly Working knows, you start out each podcast asking each guest how it is they kind of discovered their vocation uh, and how they ended up doing what it is that they do. Um, So I would like to start out the same way. So what is the short story version of how you came to be a workforce expert here at AEI and who is particularly influential for you along the way there?
3: Yeah. And that's... I love the question, obviously, because I ask it every time I do an interview, and I ask it even when I'm not interviewing. I will very frequently, just in regular conversation, I always want to start out knowing about who that person is and how uh, they got to where they are and what were the kind of the forces intellectually and, and personally that shaped them. So for me, uh, I would go all the way back uh, to high school, um, where I had a high school guidance counselor uh, who became a, a really a lifelong friend. Uh, he's he's he passed away a number of years ago, but uh, he was a uh, a lifelong friend and mentor um, for me. Um, Uh, I was privileged to be able to um, travel with him, uh, groups of, um, he took a group from our high school every year uh, to somewhere, big overseas trip, and I got to go with him twice. I went to uh, one trip to Europe, the Middle East, Africa, um, over a a one-month period, Uh, and then the second trip was to China, and this is... 1981. So uh, this was back as uh, liberalization was just taking hold. We, we spent most of our time in Hong Kong, but we did go into mainland China for a couple days. days. Uh, anyway, uh, that was a super formative experience for me. I, mean, was, I was always very much interested in the world around me. But uh, seeing that Seeing having that experience, seeing such a variety of cultures, and uh, stepping into history um, really just put all of that um, on steroids for me. I mean, I, I just fell in love with um, wanting to know more about the world, about politics, about um, foreign policy. Uh, so uh so he he was a personal mentor. he really you know encouraged me um in my interests uh, but he also um w- did this other work of kind of actually um, introducing me um to some of the things that I later became interested in um in terms of education so that's the first person I would put on that list. The second person. Um, was uh, a college professor. I think I took just about every class that he offered when I was in college. Uh, he, he was in the history department. He was pretty old school, uh, Princeton graduate uh, or PhD from Princeton. Uh, uh, he was a Russian specialist. And I took just every class that I could um, from him because he was so hard. He was just a really difficult um, teacher, uh, or he shouldn't say that. He's a great teacher, difficult classes um, that really forced me to grapple with primary text and get comfortable with um, developing um, my own thoughts rather than relying on other people to tell me um, what, the, uh, what the conclusions were. Now, I frequently wound up at the same Conclusions, I think, uh, but but he didn't spoon feed, uh, and he made us like go to the stacks and pull books off the shelf and actually do the reading. So uh, that was a major impulse. He tried to get me to pursue a PhD in history, but we both agreed I wasn't really um, well suited to it, uh, and. Um, uh, so that that was, uh, but he again very formative. And I think the last one was uh, the last big influence in terms of shaping me professionally and my interests uh, was the seven years that I spent working for Senator Sam Nunn, uh, now retired, uh, but a Senator he was Senator from Georgia for many years, um, and that that stint that I spent with him, which was kind of the longest of. Um, of my career in one place um, was absolutely critical. Um, And it was critical because he was the kind of senator to work for that always demanded that we understand the issues. He didn't have time to to go in depth with us uh, or go in depth, I'm sorry, with Every issue. He was a very busy man. Chairman of the Armed Services Committee. The, the Cold War was winding down. It, it was a it was a really um, interesting time, very demanding, and so he really relied on us to know the issues. And when he what he meant by that was that he needed to know that we knew both sides of the argument. That we had to be able to articulate not the weakest arguments being used by one side or the other, but the strongest arguments so that he could make a decision how to vote based on what the strongest arguments were. Um, and and that has really stayed with me as just intellectually formative for working in policy um, or on policy issues because it, it's too easy to fall into the trap of um, only um, or cherry-picking data, or cherry-picking analysis to get the end result that you want. Um, and I found that to be invaluable um, in maintaining a kind of intellectual balance um, that's so critical, I think, in policy work. So I'd say those are the, the three kind of <clears throat> main um, shapers there have been a lot of other people, and I—I uh, I don't mean to slight any of them, but I—I I, I would say that those three have had the biggest impact on me.
0: Yeah, that's that's really powerful, and like just kind of final step. How, how did how is it that you ended up at AEI?
3: So um, I spent 14 years uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, Capitol Hill staff usually, on average, stay about two or three years tops, so um, that, that was an unusually long stint uh, on on Capitol Hill. In 2001, I was um, hired into the Bush administration, the uh, U.S. Department of Labor, to run um, the faith-based and community initiative office that was just getting started there. Uh, it was there for the first term of the Bush administration, and then the second term, I went to um, the Administration for Children and Families, which is a division of uh, HHS, Health and Human Services, where I spent a lot of time on welfare policy. And and I think between those two experiences, you can kind of see uh, how my policy interests have developed, very strong interests in labor and workforce and work as the pathway to self-sufficiency, and um, uh, and work because of the 1996 welfare reform was also at the heart of welfare policy. So those two things kind of blended together. Um, after the Bush administration, I was in consulting for um, about 10 years. And then um, I always admired AEI um, as a serious a conservative institution turning out, or turning out, I should say, great, reliable uh, analysis. And I'd always wanted to work at AEI. Um, and it just so happened that a good friend of mine, um, Ryan Streeter, who now runs domestic policy at AEI, he and I have worked together in the Bush administration, uh, called me up and said, why don't you try this out, you know, just come over and we'll, you know, we'll We'll try a couple projects and see how it works. And so I did. And uh, of course, I fell in love with AEI. Um, it is an amazing institution. Uh, the academic freedom that we have as as scholars at AEI to pursue our own interests is um, really a unique um, and invaluable opportunity, especially at this stage in my career when I'm, you know, I'm. 58 and a half. Um, I think I've got another 10 years in me um, of full-time work. And um, this is a great opportunity both to extend my knowledge, but also to share what I've learned um, in 30 plus years of working in public policy.
0: Yeah. And I think that experience and pedigree is extremely valuable. So thank you. you. You, uh, I don't think you belong anywhere else uh, other than here. So, uh, but with that, I'll pass it over to Jesse.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're certainly glad you're at AI and uh, building off of that. You uh, you lead the workforce development area here at AI, but you don't call it that. We call it vocation, career, and work, or for anyone else, VCW, uh, internal to AI. So take a moment to tell us why did you pick vocation, career, and work to describe your work? And actually, I'm just curious, when did you start calling that? When did it? When did VCW become the common nomenclature for Brentorrell's world?
3: So, um, it's a good question, and it was one that I think uh, a lot of people were wondering um, when I started talking about work that I was doing uh, in that way uh, of calling it broadening the focus or the lens that we wanted to use away from simply skills and employment to this question of vocation. So. Uh, it, I started pretty early on um, thinking about it and talking about the work um, in that way. There are a number of reasons why. The most important one is that I think that the concept of vocation, the sense that we each are called to certain kinds of work that are especially well-suited to our skills and interests. It's a very important core concept for me as a person of religious faith, where the word vocation actually comes from, comes out out of religion, sense of calling and purpose in life, it it sits right at the center of how I think about how we develop as human beings. really, really important and, and very much undervalued, I think in our current conversation about the economy and about workforce and jobs and careers, uh, that happiness in life is much a much bigger question than um, what we tend to think of in terms of work, which is always about how am I going to support myself? That's a really important question to be asked, but it's not the first question to be asked. The first question to be asked is, who am I? What gifts have I been endowed with that I have to share with the world around me? That's important both from the standpoint of you know, contributing to society. Uh, it's also extremely important from the standpoint of personal happiness. Um, I think that we tend to get locked in on this question of how am I going to support myself, which again is not an irrelevant question, but it's just not a first order question um, for people to be thinking about as they're thinking about decisions related to education and career and the kinds of jobs that they want to do. As you all know, because I have use this, I think, with each of you, and you've heard me do it with other people that I'm interviewing for jobs, um, I always ask people, what's the story in the newspaper or on the website? We don't really have newspapers as much anymore, but on, when, you're, when you're reading, just for general purposes, what's the, what's the story that you never fail to read? what's the story that always draws your attention, that you always want to stop and know more about that topic? Um, Because, and the reason that I ask that is that I think that points to sort of the core interests of any individual. You're not reading this because you have to, or because you need to for work, or because somebody told you to, but because you're motivated to read it. And that, I think, really starts to point in the direction of these core interests, which in turn, I think, point to vocational calling. Um, So that's why vocation. Vocation, in my view, is the key long-term to being content in what we do with our lives uh, from a work standpoint. So that's, what, that's why vocation, career, and work, they link together. Vocation are these primary callings. Career is how those callings get expressed over time. And work is what we're doing on a moment-to-moment basis while we're uh, at our jobs in order to fulfill the vocational calling that we started with.
1: So that's a... What some people might say is a pretty radical idea, and it turns a lot of what we think of today in career exploration on its head. But I know you've said to us before, um, when people say, oh, that's risky to follow your vocation, follow your passion. And you've said before it's riskier not to. Can you explain to readers who might kind of recoil at this explanation of vocational calling why it's riskier actually to not follow the vocational calling that they're called towards?
3: Well, you, you and I, and and uh, Hunter and Jake have all been working on a, a piece recently, and and one of the more interesting statistics in that piece are that about forty percent of Americans experience burnout in their jobs. And I think we have to ask the question, why? Why that burn? Why do so many people experience burnout um, to the point where they end up? leaving their occupation to go find something else, I would hazard a guess that a lot of that burnout is the result of a misalignment between vocation and work and and probably career too, but certainly between vocation and work. If you aren't exercising your primary gifts, the things that you do just because that's kind of the way you're built, uh, I, I think you run a higher risk of burning out in a job no matter how much it pays um, because what we know from the research is that job the, the job satisfaction that we derive from money um, tops out at about $75,000 a year. The increments that you, we receive above that don't really add a lot to life satisfaction. You can have nicer toys, you can have a bigger house, uh, you can acquire more. But that doesn't necessarily lead to greater personal happiness. In fact, in many ways, it doesn't at all. It just uh, gives you more things that you have to take care of. Um, uh, So that's why I say it's risky not to follow vocation. Uh, not to engage in that exercise, trying to understand what you're really built to do um, because it increases the risk of burnout, disillusionment, uh, and a lot of other unhappiness in life. Um, And and honestly, who wants to be working on the thing that they're second best at or third best at just because somebody told you or told us that's what you should do because that's what's going to generate an income for you. I it, one of the other things connected to this, I always try to say is, look, we've got a twenty-three trillion dollar economy that we uh, that we swim around in here. Um, it is very unlikely that an an averagely Educated, averagely motivated person is going to lack the basics of life—the things that they need to be able to buy, to afford. That's that's pretty unlikely. It's not impossible. We could, you know, have an economic catastrophe, and and uh, you know, we're all on the on the uh, under the Thunderdome, uh, you know, fighting for our lives. But but, but that's pretty unlikely. Um, and in the meantime, um, we've got a lot of choices to make. So it's really important then if we if we turn down the knob around economic anxiety, you know, and the um, and the and the race to the top that we that we tend to get drawn into, and think more about uh, our personal wellness. Satisfaction with the job that we do, um, not um, not run. We're not running the risk then of waking up one day and saying, "What did I do with my life?"
1: That's a scary proposition.
2: That's re- that's really powerful. Um, I could jump in here. Um, I'm curious. You're you're talking about this idea of vocation, and to to follow up on that. Um, you ask the question or you encourage listeners to ask the question, who am I as, as a starting point? Um, so, what are some other questions or ways that listeners could consider um, to identify their own vocational calling and is it possible that those questions could lead them to an answer that has multiple facets? Um, uh, I guess another way to say that right. is, could one person have multiple vocations in multiple facets of their lives at the same time? Yeah,
3: yeah, no. I it's it's a really good, uh, really good question. I'm going to start with that part. Work is only one part of our lives, um, and um, actually, again, in the Christian tradition, if you use the word vocation, you are sometimes thinking about people who become priests or they enter a religious order as a monk or a nun, those are called vocations. The other thing that's um, called a vocation is marriage, Um, that our our unions with our beloveds are vocations that have to be worked at, that we we have a calling to it and then we have to work at it. Um, And so vocation has uh, a number of different... Um, uh, facets or our life vocation has a number of different facets, uh, including uh, including work um, and family. So yes, vocation, that sense of calling and of purpose uh, can be found in a number of different areas of life. Um, so the other thing I would say about that idea of vocation is that it's not simple. To translate our strongest interests desires um, uh, uh, skills necessarily into a career and that's where you have to get into the economic question and really think hard about all right I've got I've got a, a picture of myself in terms of my core interests now I have to figure out how to translate vocation into a uh, a career and into a job, um, or into a job and into then into a career, uh, and that's not that's not a simple matter. It isn't um, it isn't a matter of just saying, "Well, I, I, I love watching movies, so I'm going to go to film school, and I'm just going to pray that it all works out somehow." Um, you have to think hard about um, what is it they about. Watching a movie that you find uh, interesting, is it possible that that is leading indicator of um, skills in video editing or in uh, in digital media or you know there, there's a whole different conversation about once I've identified these these core interests and attributes of trying to translate them into um, I, it, it translate them to the market. We all have to translate to the market. Uh, and so it's not enough to just say, follow your passions. Your your passions are just raw material for figuring out what you're good at um, and, uh, and, and then figuring out how to take that into the marketplace and sell that interest and that ability and that skill um, in the market. So um, that's I think those all of those things kind of work together. Vocation is a much broader, uh, much broader than just work, uh, or just our work life, um, and it is not a simple matter to translate it. So how do we go about translating it? Well, I I can only give you what I've seen in my own life, which is finding those mentors uh, who can help you do that work who can be your sounding board and what I typically recommend to people is find somebody who really loves you but isn't a family member. They need a little bit of distance from you uh, in order to help you be objective about yourself uh, and uh, encourage um, but inject some reality uh, into... The in, into the discussion about vocation. Um, I so I think that is uh, that's an important step in the translation process. Don't try to do this inside your own head, um, do it in conversation with others.
0: Yeah, that's like really important, uh, to, to find that kind of mentor figure. And I, I think oftentimes in people's introspection of trying to discern their vocation. Like like you said, they might get almost stuck uh, to... They have not gone down to the root of what it is that uh, really does drive their core interests. So for like the film example, uh, I, I often find that people might stop at, oh, like it's a vocational interest of mine to love and watch movies. Um, but they don't go that step further to ask, you know, maybe why is it... What is it about movies that. Uh, or, or films that makes uh, that that I'm so interested in or wanting to be a part of that. So I think people, uh, young people, stop too close up the chain there to kind of before they get to the the core idea as to why. And and again, I want to reiterate the importance of that kind of like mentor, uh, close associate that is, like you said, a little farther from the family but uh, definitely cares about your best interest some really important points there. But as a follow-on to that, there's a lot of discussion these days about just follow your passion, uh, do what you're passionate about. And I think you kind of touched on this like uh, pretty uh, uh, briefly, but I, I would like to kind of dive in for a second about what you think is the relationship between someone's passions and, and how that manifests into a career. Because I know someone who... Uh, has experienced uh, some serious burnout uh, uh, making their passion their work, uh, and has since kind of shifted things to be a bit more parallel. Their passion and their work don't necessarily intersect directly, but he's found a way to make his passion and his work separate but related. Um, so, like, what do you what do you feel is like the right way uh, to go about organizing your passions in your career?
3: Yeah, passion uh, has somehow become a dirty word, um, especially especially among, I would say, uh, conservatives, um, that it's it's really viewed as being just you know like impractical and uh, and again, there's this lingering cloud of anxiety um, around people that. Um, you know, if you follow your passions, you're going to wind up as a barista for the rest of your life. That actually isn't going to happen. Um, you know, the, the data on this is pretty clear uh, that, you know, if you, if you follow through on your educational pathway, whether it's a four-year degree or, you know, some sort of post-secondary or an apprenticeship or something like that, uh, you're going to be fine. You know, um, like I said, it's $23 trillion economy. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, when politicians, uh, you know, say things like, "we've," you know, we don't need more philosophers or we don't need more anthropologists. I mean, the first question I would want to ask a politician who said that is, how do you know? You know, what makes you believe that that's the case? Um, it may be you've got the next great philosopher on your hands maybe you've got uh, a somebody who's going to provide breakthrough research uh, that helps us understand more um, about the world around us as an anthropologist you, you don't know that uh, and it's a it's a facet of populism, as it relates to um, education, training, and workforce, which I think is particularly pernicious. Um, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go to a four-year institution to realize their passions, nor am I saying that people shouldn't go to a four-year institution to develop their interests and their passions. It's not up to me to say that, nor is it up to any politician to say that, that's a decision that people reach on their own uh, in cooperation and conversation with the people around them who know them and can help to guide them. Uh, so uh, so I know that's a little bit off tack, but that, uh, that's one of the ways, I think, that our sort of our contemporary discourse around the idea of passion tends to warp um, our ability to think clearly about uh, the issue of vocation. Um, we have tremendous, we, we are blessed as Americans to have tremendous, uh, a, sorry, a tremendous amount of choice in life, uh, and, but it can also be a burden uh, to have that many choices and we need to invest up front in setting course around those choices um, rather than just um, like checking a box. Uh, You know, I I read recently that 90% of American parents want to see their children go into engineering. Uh, That's absurd. Uh, There's no way that, that that could ever in any conceivable universe um, be true, that 90% of Americans have a, um, a capacity or an interest uh, to become engineers. Um, so uh, we need a different model, a vocational model, that begins with a different set of questions as I talked about earlier. Um, so, uh that that's how I that's how I sort of uh think about this passion question. Is it overused? Is it, you know, has it been abused by Madison Avenue and Hollywood sure. Uh it uh, you know, follow your passions is a good idea, properly constructed and a very bad idea if it turns into a whim.
0: Right. Yeah, there seems to be a little bit of the Smithian man of system going on from both sides uh, of the political spectrum when it comes to, uh, you know, trying to, uh, when it comes to that term passion, um, you know, I think people need to realize that there's no one way to go about your vocational journey.
3: Um, So... Yeah, it's much, I agree, It's 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 an organic process that we... Uh, that we want to try to systematize. So, uh, and that that's that's a mistake. don't don't try to turn this into a system. Be thoughtful, seek counsel uh, but uh, but recognize that development of vocation, career and work is an organic process that you're not going to be able to determine ahead of time. I thought I came to Washington, D.C. to become a foreign policy expert. That's why I studied Russian and East European history. And then I got here and I realized that I was competing with people with PhDs uh, to answer letters from constituents in that field. Um, And so I had to then pull back and say to myself, what am I going to do now? I I can't compete against that. Or I can't compete easily against that. So, uh, um, and then I and then I discovered that the same tools that I had that I had learned uh, in terms of close reading and reflection were very very useful across the policy spectrum. And then I found that I was really interested in poverty issues, and I could apply that passion around. Understanding um, to a very particular policy issue, set of policy issues that I, uh, that I just, you know, fell in love with trying to understand. So that that's, a, I think, a good example of sort of that translation from, um, you know, vocational interest to the practicalities of the market. Um, no, nope, not many people were really interested in, in learning more about poverty uh, and and I found that I was
1: so I want to dig into that exploratory phase that you're talking about here in matching your interests to the market and it it happens all over because we have we live in an economy full of choices. You go to the store and you decide you're going to buy peppers and then you realize, oh, there's five types of peppers. And I think that happens with university and, and vocation too. It's like someone decides they're going to study policy and they think, oh, great, I decided. And then there's an infinite amount of policy questions that they could explore for the rest yeah. of their life. Um, and you, you were talking about how you kind of found your way to, I guess you would say, would you say, A, did you find your vocation when you decided to start exploring poverty? And then B, were there any kind of red flags in what you were exploring before that maybe you weren't really interested in that in the first place? Or was it really a a kind of market push that led you to poverty rather than an internal magnetism towards poverty?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think there there were some magnets there for sure. I mean, I my, uh, one of my favorite classes in college um, was this class, it was called the History of the American City, and uh, there was probably 25 people uh, in the class, and um, most of them couldn't stand it, could not stand it because of the instructional uh, methodology that the professor used. She, she was kind of this petite woman, uh, and and she, every you know Monday Wednesday Friday or whenever we met I can't remember Tuesday Thursday she she would lug in to the classroom this enormous binder, um, and uh, and she would stand in front of the class and she would basically read verbatim out of this binder for an hour and. It was all about how the city developed uh, in 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 America, and I was I was bowled over. I just found it so fascinating. Um, I've always loved cities, and um, so I think that that was like there there was a seed there, and I think that seed actually came from my dad, who grew up. Um, in Philadelphia during the Great Depression era, and hearing his stories about what life was like living in the city, uh, and the tensions and opportunities, and uh, you know the relationships between the ethnic groups, and it was all it was. I've always found that stuff so interesting. So I think it was there. It was just buried, um, uh, and it, it all it took was. You know, I am, I'm working on Capitol Hill with uh, members of Congress um, and traveling their districts, particularly in the South. I had two different jobs working for Southerners and encountering poverty in, in, in the American context in a way that I had never seen growing up in Oregon uh, and realizing, wow, there's a lot here that needs to be done. Um, there are people that are trapped. Uh, in intergenerational poverty. And this is something that, you know, this is really important, both at a social level and um, at the the level of individual lives.
1: So on that similar path in your own kind of transition from foreign policy towards realizing you had this innate passion towards poverty policy and workforce policy. Was there... Did you experience anxiety in your own vocational transition and journey? Because you talk a lot Mm -hmm. about the anxiety people experience in finding vocation. So, put yourself back in your own uh, initial explorer shoes. And what, what did that anxiety look like? in your life? And what would you tell people who are in the mid 20s to mid 30s today, thinking about a career transition or moving jobs? Because we know, looking at data, there's a lot of people thinking about moving jobs right now.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, there's another word for anxiety. It's called the survival instinct. Um, we, we're, we are built to plan ahead and to avoid uh, danger uh, you know, from you know, uh, on the savannas of Africa, our ancestors were always on the lookout for lions, uh, and we carry that. Uh, we we carry that with us. Um, so uh, it's it's an instinct to uh, try to mitigate danger and maximize opportunity, uh, and so uh, anxiety um, when it. When it gets out of hand, is destructive, but uh, it's also unavoidable um, for people. Uh, it, but it's a, it's a problem that needs to be managed um, in making career decisions, uh, rather than jumping too quickly. To uh, I got it. the the lion I'm trying to um, to kill here is the one that is I'm not going to have enough. In life, and so I need to. Uh, the 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 only thing that I can focus on is trying to reduce my anxiety around the economic questions that I have to answer. And so, it's there. It's there for a reason. Uh, it's important to our thriving and our survival. Um, but it, it's also something that has to be tempered and worked with. Um, so that we can think clearly on these other questions of not what do I have to do to survive, but what do I want to do to flourish?
2: Okay. Uh, thanks for that. That's, that's really awesome. Um, that was great. So uh, we're, we're wondering kind of who are three people uh, from your academic or professional life, like the, the life of your mind as you were going through um, mm-hmm. your vocation uh, search that influenced your thinking along the way?
3: Yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, when I was, I did a interview recently that you guys are familiar with, with um, Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's got a fascinating background, personal history. And uh, we got into this question of how we are mentored by dead people um, often in our in our breeding, um, they uh, we never knew them, but in a sense, they did know us um, because they are they wrote things down for us so that we could benefit from their experience uh, and their thinking, and and um, and so it's really important to find those. Um, Intellectual mentors um, in your own life, um, and to and always be looking for the next sort of the next one. Um, so, I would say that one of the most formative in my life um, is C.S. Lewis, um, who uh, really, for me, really was able to bring together the substantive issues of faith, which I think are extremely important, with a logical means of understanding them and helping them to take hold within us and not become just a purely intellectual exercise. I would say that he's a biggie for me. More recently in my life, the work of Adam Smith, the great 18th century philosopher, the founder of kind of what we think of today as market economics, has become a really important bridge figure um, for me uh, because, uh, and he's he's very well known for um, the Wealth of Nations. Obviously, that's the book that's really associated um, in, with him uh, in people's minds. But this other book, you guys have heard me talk a lot about this, and we're all reading this book together now, Um, but the the other book, and I think more important book, uh, is The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith, which gives a language for understanding how human beings develop um, that is universally accessible. I have a theological language about who human beings are and why they are uh, the way they are, um, and what what's been especially helpful to me is that uh, that Adam Smith gives a language for articulating very very similar ideas in a in a, in a vocabulary that can be accessed by people who don't believe in God, um, and uh, and I think that's from a policy standpoint, policy development standpoint, that's just extremely important. not enough for me to say that we need to do certain things because people are made in the image of God, and they uh, have uh, innate dignity um, that has to be respected. Uh, I can also say... You know what Adam Smith does about how human beings develop? He says that we develop in relationship with one another. Um, and that those two ideas uh, are constant with one another, the theological and the sort of philosophical re- reflection on how human beings develop, how they discover themselves, how they discover the world. Um like there's not a lot of space between them, and Smith was not a religious man, at least that we can tell. That he doesn't really appeal to a deity. So that's been very, very important to me, um, and I, I feel mentored by this man who died 300 years ago, um, uh, in in kind of uh, grappling with the work that we have to do. Um, you know, on our team, uh, and I'll just give one example of how it kind of plays out, which is that um, the, the libertarian insight around the centrality of the individual um, in relationship to other people is really the core explanation for how the market operates both how human beings develop and how the market operates. And we need to respect both of those things. We we need to respect this pathway of human development um, and the autonomy of the um, agency of the individual um, in making decisions for themselves about vocation, career, and work. Um, And uh, so consequently, we, you know, in the products and things that we um, develop, we talk a lot about, um, you know, methods for restoring agency, helping people develop agency, um, of systems that respond to the market signals of individuals making choices. Those are all, that all kind of grows out of um, this Smith, for me out of this kind of Smithian reflection um, so that's, that's how I would say that applies um, in, a, in a real world um, in a real world way and then there's one um, there's one uh, writer who writes fiction uh, her name is Susan Howitch H-O-W-A-T C-H um, that I highly recommend um, and again, uh, her novels, which uh, are great fun to read, are also kind of like deeply, deeply interested and um, uh, focused on the internal life of human beings and how that internal life connects to um, the society around them. So. I, those are the three authors that, that really come to mind for me.
0: Yeah, that's like super helpful for understanding, you know, where your head's at. Um, and that's quite a, a meaty reading list uh, for our listeners to to explore themselves. I know the uh, uh, the. I guess the repertoire of C.S. Lewis and uh, and definitely the length of Adam Smith's works uh, can keep uh, people busy for quite a while, but uh, uh, and is well worth the journey. But uh, you know, kind of tacking a different route of you know what what are three books that you would say or commend unto people who are discerning their career path or vocation right now that are particularly helpful for that kind of. Uh, that kind of pursuit uh, specifically, um, either fiction or or, or otherwise?
3: Yeah, so uh, I would strongly recommend um, a book, uh, the title of it is Range, R-A-N-G-E, Range, by um, Shapiro, I think is the author's last name. Uh, But he really looks at the question of narrow skills versus broad skills uh, in terms of uh, making decisions about making educational decisions. Um, You know, he talks about, um, uh, you know, who's the Swiss tennis player? His name I can never
2: remember. Roger Federer. Uh,
3: Yeah, Roger Federer. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, he uses this illustration of Roger Futterer of um, uh, his mom was a tennis coach um, who absolutely refused to play tennis with him because he was so unorthodox uh, in his play that it was just not fun uh, for an adult um, who doesn't, you know, isn't looking to remake the game or just looking for fun and exercise. Um so she, she refused, she was a very talented tennis player, refused to play tennis with him. And, and then she went a step further and said, you've got to try all sorts of different things. you got to play um, soccer. You've got to swim. You've got, we want to get you into, you know, a whole range of different sports. And so she made him do this. And then he eventually came back to tennis as an adolescent with all of these other skills that he learned in these other sports That he could then apply to tennis and become the greatest of all time, one of the greatest of all time players, and I think that that's a a good illustration of you know how we need to give ourselves a chance to experiment in life, to find the thing that we're really interested in, um, and recognize that you know there isn't a linear pathway um, to getting where we think we want to go. Uh, and that we can take some really interesting detours that end up being very satisfying and become our life's work unexpectedly. So that I, I think that's been a great book for me to read and think about. A second book that has really shaped my thinking over the last few years is by a British psychiatrist and literature professor. Um, his name is Ian McGilchrist, and it's called... The Master and His Emissary. And I heard about this book on Russ Roberts' podcast, Econ Talk, another great podcast. If you're not listening to it, you should. He wrote a book, The Master and His Emissary, came out a while ago. Uh, It took him 20 years to write. And when Russ Roberts was describing it, and I knew that I had to read it, he said, it's a book I can't recommend and can't recommend highly enough at the same time. Uh, It is, Seven hundred pages, very dense uh, text, um, and absolutely fascinating uh, examination of uh, what we know about how the brain works, uh, and then his interpretation of kind of what's gone wrong in the way that um, that people in the West sort of analyze, think about and analyze information uh, and its implications for culture and society. Uh, and it's, it, it's another one of these books that really gave me a vocabulary for understanding uh, a lot of what I was seeing in the world, but didn't, hadn't really crystallized yet. Um, and so I really strongly recommend that. We've got a short paper version of that. I I made him write us a few thousand words summarizing his argument. It's on our website. Uh, There's also a lecture that he came to AEI and delivered along with John Cleese, the comedian. And there's also a documentary that was based on his book, which I think is on Netflix right now, called The Divided Brain. Divided Mind. I can't remember which, but uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, But that's a really exciting, uh, to me, uh, uh, book. Um, It'll take some time to get through, uh, but uh, as Jake just said, it's well worth the journey.
1: There's also a podcast with Ian McGilchrist on Hardly Working, episode 29. That's true. I interviewed him as well. Where you find all of your Hardly Working podcasts. So while we're talking about episode 29, Ian McGilchrist's podcast, Brent, can you talk to listeners about Hardly Working podcast? What do you envision it to be? Uh, we have a great lineup for this spring coming down. Um, and we're, on, we're in the 60s on episodes now. And uh, within, within a couple months to within the next year, we'll hit 100 episodes of Hardly Working. So what do you really envision the podcast to be? In, and what are you hoping listeners will get out of it through listening to it?
3: Well, we've been doing some work to kind of plan this out a little bit, and um, one of my challenges as a generalist um, is that I'm interested in everything, Um, but I have to also focus. Uh, And so what we try to focus most of our conversations on is around things related to work, vocation, career, and work, and then we have um, another focus area. Around criminal justice and criminal justice reform, and so one of the things I'm really excited about coming up is a series of podcasts that we're going to be doing on criminal justice reform, looking at it from both high-level policy abstract questions all the way down to um, you know theories of dissidence, how people learn to stop committing crimes, to Interviews with people who have been to prison, uh, and run organizations that are designed to help people um, who are transitioning out of incarceration. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be that's our some of the things we're going to be doing in March. We're also going to be continuing to do um, a lot of work uh, around um, issues of career and vocation, the training, education, training, employment. Um, pipeline. Um, so we've we've got a really interesting um, set of interviews coming up um, that you'll you know people will want to listen to if they've got an interest in that. And then we're going to be just sprinkling in um, some some interviews that may kind of be a little bit broader than uh, just vocation, career, and work or criminal justice, but related. You know, thinking about um, questions of career longevity. Um, Reading a great book right now on burnout that I want to um, engage the author on. There's another one on uh, that I'm looking at on how um, passion. We talked about it earlier. Passion is actually something that is only for elites, uh, and I want and and that it has a way of disadvantaging. Um, people who are outside the mainstream by focusing on, by encouraging people to focus on passion. So I want to, I, I want to keep pushing into these topics on uh, the podcast and bringing people along um, in in kind of the journey of thinking and discovery that we have the privilege of as a team doing every day.
1: Yeah, we're all very excited about. What's we have lined up for hardly working as well. And just while we're talking directly to you, listeners, if you have any body that you want to hear Brent interview, or if you hear something on an interview that you have a question about, or even something that you disagree with or something that you recoil at, uh, you can tweet Brent. And Brent, what's your Twitter handle?
3: At Aurel A E I.
1: So he is very active on Twitter, and also you can email us if you find Brent's scholar page. That's actually going to be my email, but we're always open to, to talking to listeners and hearing you guys' disagreements, complaints, uh, and praise as well, hopefully.
2: <laughs> Great. So we're nearing the end of our time here. So to close up shop here, we want to circle back to the vocational themes that have been the broad theme here today um, and ask you about particular pieces of advice or wisdom uh, that you've gotten along the way from different types of people. It's a question that you like to ask guests at the end end of episodes, so we want to pose it to you. Um, So, what are words that have stuck with you throughout your vocational journey and Mm -hmm. how have you turned that into motivation in your own work?
3: There was a a book written a number of years ago, not a very good book, but a good idea for a book, Words That Count, I think was the name of it. But it was a set of interviews um, with sort of famous people um, about, uh, about things that were said to them that have kind of stayed with them um, over their lives and really shaped uh, who they are as people. Not always positive. In fact, one of the more interesting stories in that book was that um, Muhammad Ali had this um, like junior high teacher or maybe high school teacher who like criticized him and, and uh, cut him down constantly in class. You know, you'll never amount to anything. You'll never do anything with your life. You're just a waste of protoplasm basically. Um, and uh, And that drove him to become... Who he was as a boxer, and and when he won the heavyweight title, he went back to that teacher, that school, that teacher, and threw it on her desk and said, "You're wrong." Um, so it's not always uh, it's not always a positive thing um, that that shapes us. I would say for me, one of the main things that has stayed with me, uh, a couple things that my my dad um, said to me. One was. Um, that the world is is full of givers and takers. You need to make sure that you are a giver. So that has really stayed with me, you know, to be other directed. Um, uh, and it happens to fit pretty well with kind of my basic personality, I think. World's full of giver, givers and takers, and so be a giver. And then he would also say, the world is not going to change for you. You're going to have to change for the world. And I think that gave me a sense of realism about life, and it's surprisingly applicable to work and and career. We're not going to be able to shape the institutions that we work for to our image. We're going to have to conform our image to those institutions and become part of them and work within them. And I, so I think that's just very valuable and valuable to me in terms of career advice. It's frustrating um, because sometimes, you know, the injustices of, of life are so apparent and we want to see them change and we can work toward that and we should, but uh, we shouldn't expect the world to change for us.
2: That's a really good note to end on. Brent, thank you for your time. Thank you for letting us do this. This has been a real treat for us on, on the research team here. And we love working with you, and we love working on these topics, and we're glad to hear your take on them. So, thanks for your time. Well,
3: you guys are absolutely the best, and I'm going to just say this publicly: I am so fortunate that you guys found your way into uh, AEI and into my life and into the life of the work that we're doing together. And I couldn't do it without you. So, uh, it's it's an honor and a privilege um, to labor alongside you and and work together to add what we can um, uh, to the knowledge and understanding of the world.
0: Well, that's an incredibly heartfelt note uh, to end on. So thank you for joining us this
3: week on Hardly Working. You bet. we will see you guys soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.